Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Now open in Dundalk beside the Dundalk Retail Park. The nearly new sale is now on at Blackstone Motors Dundalk. One, eight, eighteen, nineteen, thirty-nine. With lucky stars seven and nine, a syndicate from County Meath will never, ever, ever forget those numbers. In fact, I think they'll frame them in gold because that combination last night on the Euro Millions draw won one hundred and seventy-five million four hundred and seventy-five thousand and three hundred and eighty. Euro. Can you believe it? What a win it's been. And the man who sold that wonderful ticket is on the line with me. I'm delighted to talk to him this afternoon, directly from the Knoll, the daybreak in the Knoll. Les Riley's on the line. Hello, Les. Hello, Jerry. How are you? Oh, my God. I hear it in your voice. It must be unbelievable in the village this morning, is it? Uh, village, I don't know. Are you familiar with it? I am very. And it is hopping at the moment. <laughs> well, Les, can I tell you, I have bought an odd ticket pass and threw in your place, and I have enjoyed your ice cream, let me tell you. It's but I... N- in North County Dublin, Jerry. <laughs> a good man yourself. Mind your Christmas, <laughs> Oh, you're a late lunch listener, or somebody in your family is, for sure. Yeah, when you met- Is she? <laughs> really? What's your mum's name? Alan Riley. Ah, uh, Ellen, hello. I say hello to you this afternoon. It's great to be talking to your son, and such a wonderful occasion. Oh, Jerry, it's absolutely... Do you know what... We obviously news travelled fast. We heard last night that there was one winner in Ireland, and automatically I thought, um, like we do a syndicate for the locals or anybody who wants to join it, uh, two euro ahead. And I said, Jesus, maybe we won it. Like, and the first thing I done this morning came in seven o'clock. Didn't even do the newspapers. Checked the syndicate, and uh, unfortunately we won thirty-eight euro. <laughs> well, we got thirty-five cent each. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, you know, I've worked it out. If there's seven in this syndicate, they've won just over 25 million each. If it's six, it's almost 30 million. Yeah, it's absolutely life-changing. Like, oh. it's... Like, half a million is life-changing. Yes. One million is life-changing. Like, everyone's here hugging me. <laughs> <laughs> I hear the atmosphere there in the background. When but, um, was the ticket sold? Do you know? Uh, that's not out there at the moment, Jerry. I haven't a clue. It could have been any time between Friday and... Tuesday, on Tuesday, okay. And you don't know whether it's a quick pick or numbers they selected or no. I haven't a clue. I don't. Okay, know. I don't one, even know the value of the ticket yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, sure. It's one. Well, I'm sure, I'll find out pretty quick. Now. You will, and we we <laughs> believe we're hearing that the the winners have made contact with the national lottery already. Made, and uh, do you know what? The very best of luck, health, happiness to them. <laughs> I hope there's a lot a lot involved in the family. Yeah. Spread the wealth, spread the love, but most importantly. Enjoy our health. Exactly. And that's what it's about. And I wish the very same. I, I join with you in, in those good wishes. Have you ever sold a winner of sorts before there? The biggest winner, Jerry, we had was around this time of the year, six years ago, we sold 25,000 euro winner. Right. It was the biggest we ever won. And that was actually our own syndicate. 
Okay. And so, that was the last time we won. Like, we have, like, so to say, 5,000, 2,000. Yeah. We sell an awful lot of um, scratch card winners. Mm. But we are getting, like, when I say big winners, we sell a lot of, you know, the raffle number, like, say, 300, 500 euro winners. Yeah. But, like, all the countries in Europe, Jerry, there's 10 that do the euro millions. Our small village, with a population of, what, 1,100 people, sells the biggest winner ever in Ireland. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm actually just, I'm actually emotional over it, like. I can understand. It is. It's history making. It it really is. And you will benefit twenty five thousand richer you are today in the shop, are you? Rumor has it, but I don't know. I haven't actually uh, been talking to anybody about that. But um, yeah, it looks like it. Anyway, I I was just thinking. You know, one hundred and seventy five million. You get twenty five. People are probably thinking, God, that's small for the the person who sold the ticket. But listen, twenty five k richer today than yesterday. Uh, If you got an extra ten or a day, isn't it a bonus? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you just... Do you know what, Jerry? We have a fantastic local football club, Clanwira, and they have this slogan, and it actually fits our situation today. And their slogan is hashtag small village, big dreams. And the big dream has come we true. We do it one day, and by feck, we done it today, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> we might do it again. <laughs> why not? Why, why not? But look, oh, enjoy this time, there's, Les. There's cameras here, there's reporters here, there's balloons, flags, champagne. But the village is hopping, Jerry. <laughs> and I, I do know it well because I uh, record my gardening feature there with Nicky Kyle, who's just out the right, road yeah, from you yeah. there, you know, from the Nall. I'm through the village quite often. I know Killian's well on the corner, and it's oh, a lovely wee spot. <laughs> I'd say you'll know it a little better after today, to be honest, Les. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know you're under pressure. We are so grateful you took our call. I, I say hello to you. You're the local radio station. We have to talk to you. Ah, you're a top man. And again, hello to your mum, Ellen. I'll say hello uh, to this afternoon. Health aware for everybody, Les. Thanks for joining me. No problem at all. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now. What? Can you hear that? You understand, folks, can't you? Just feel it. Can't you feel the atmosphere across the radio there? The place is packed. The world media, the Irish media and beyond have descended on the knoll this afternoon, looking for any crumbs of information they can get. Well, we just thought... You know, imagine waking up this morning and if you're a member of this syndicate or if you won it on your own or have a big win of any sorts, what do you do? What should you do straight away to look after the ticket, the, the win, and how should you proceed? Well, there's only one man to talk to, isn't there? He's been listening to Les there. I'm sure he's smiling as well. It's the money doctor, John Lowe. Hello, John. Hello, Jerry. My gosh, that was fantastic news altogether. You know, Jerry, Les... Les there has, has uh, won uh, 25,000 results of that today, which is the same amount six years ago that his biggest win in that shop yes. was. Now, if I was one of the syndicate's uh, members, I would be actually giving him a few bob as well. Yeah. On top of that, uh, aside from that, because they're, what, 30 million each. Yeah. Uh, gosh, it's, it's a huge sum of money, but it's, it's a lot better, actually, now I think of it, uh, than the 175 one person. Yeah, would have been an absolute disaster. But thirty million is is, is still manageable. Um, and the first thing I'd do would I would I'd keep stum about. It. Oh, too late, John. Too late. The world well, knows. 
<laughs> well, well, I, I would be, I'd be first of all, maybe going away for a couple of weeks and, and, and taking a break and doing nothing and making sure that it's safe once you've got the money and once they have the ticket. Because I presume there's one ticket and they've all signed the back of it and that ticket should be in safekeeping somewhere. Mm. And is that important that everybody signs out who's oh, part gosh, of the group? Yeah, because they, they can be done out. I mean, that's happened in the past uh, where they, they didn't sign and, and uh, the, the, the other people on the ticket said, no, you weren't in part of the syndicate. Mm. And so they, they never got the money. And of course, it is that concern, John, when you hold that ticket. Can you imagine what went through your body, the person holding that ticket, and they see all these numbers corresponding? You'd get nervous. You'd have to straight away, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, that's one thing. But could you imagine even worse if you're saying, okay, like he was saying, there's two euros uh, per per member in their little syndicate. But say say it was 10 euros a week. And one of the, say, seven people decided, no, I'm not going to pay this week. And they won. And then the other six said, well, I'm sorry, you're not in the... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, don't want to hear that. Anyway, we're hearing, we, we don't know a name yet, but we're hearing that it is a family and they're very close and that everything is moving on because right. they've been in touch with the lottery as well. So, John, when you, when you try to gather your thoughts after a week, a month yeah. or a year or whatever, what should you do with that level of money first? Well, well let me tell you what you, first of all, can do with it because you, can't, you couldn't buy collectively a Neymar. He cost 200 million. Uh, but you could get his weight in gold 63 times in your back garden a life-size Neymar in uh, 24-karat gold, 63 statues, life-size statues of it. That's how much gold you could get. You could also buy the seventh largest house in the world. You can't buy the largest, which is Buckingham Palace at $885 million, but the seventh largest would cost you about $172 million, right. and that gets you... 53,000 square feet, a Mediterranean-style home in Beverly Hills in California, 12 bedrooms, 23 bathrooms, tennis courts, swimming pool, theatre, a garage for 27 uh, cars that actually transfers into a disco uh, at night. Uh, currently, it's owned by a politician and real estate owner called Jeff Green. But that, as I say, would cost just $172 million. And that would blow the whole lot of it, OK? Blow the whole lot of it. And that's your I mean, fantasy. You could buy um, James Bond's car, Inspector, that went for £4.34 million, pounds, so that would be well inside your £30 million. Yes. Uh, you could also actually buy uh, probably the, the, the uh, uh, certainly the, the, one of the best uh, uh, art uh, auction items, Picasso's Les Femmes d'Alger, which went actually for £158 million. You'd have to do that collectively. Right. Um, and that was in May 2015. But, but the issue, though, is really what you do with it, because obviously you're... you're uh, and, and the interesting thing, by the way, say you've got your £30 million and you put it into any bank, the whole lot, say you put it into Bank of Ireland, yeah. whatever, just to keep it uh, allowed, you are actually safe. You know this thing about the deposit protection scheme of 100000 per person? Yeah. Well, when you put a lump sum like that that you got from a windfall, you're actually given six months that you're guaranteed by the government um, for that $30 million. Okay, so there is a safety net there. There's a safety net there for the six months. After six months, if you haven't distributed that money to various investments or whatever you're doing with it, well, then you're now stuck to the 100,000 deposit protection scheme uh, kind of, you know, levels. Yes, which is a drop in the ocean uh, in comparison to what you have. What should you do, though, practically? Let's talk seriously and practically first. You should look across the board, get rid of any debt you have immediately. 
Well, absolutely. You get rid of all death. You also, uh, even aside from getting rid of death, you'd also look at your family. Yep. You'd look at uh, your, even your outer family, you know, nephews, nieces, the, the, you know, your, your brothers, sisters who have uh, maybe issues. You sort all of them out uh, without a question of it. Uh, you also then, I would, I would have thought, um, you look at, at uh, maybe your favorite charity, your favorite. Yep. You know, again, you look at people like Warren Buffett, who's worth $88 billion. He gives 99.9% of his income away to the Bill Gates Foundation. And he's restricted the money that his own children can get to $10 million. Right. So, I mean, the, 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 there's a level whereby, you know, uh, and maybe some of these people are in business. Maybe some of them want to be in business. So you've now got the seed capital. Not only the seed capital, you can buy whatever you want and, and get into whatever business you want. But you want really good, solid information, not, not, not advice from every Tom, Dick, and Harry. You know, keep it very few. There's no saying, uh, Jerry, too many cooks spoil the broth. Mm. And therefore, you don't want to get, uh, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry to give you uh, their tuppence worth of what you should be doing or not doing with it. Um, you know, I don't know what age these people are. Some of them may be near retirement. So they'll want to, you know, start thinking about, um, you know, putting money away that is, they're going to be able to spend for the rest of their lives and, and not restrict themselves from, from enjoying it. Yeah. And that's, that's a key thing as well. And would you, John, say, I take it there'll be people here who have jobs and uh, maybe they haven't gone to work today or they won't tomorrow, they might never again. But what do you say to somebody like that? You know what, something like this is absolutely life-changing. It's uh, completely life-changing, but they've got to get their, their, really they have got to get their act together because even though it's a huge sum of money, there are, there are people who we know, you know, you take you two, all those guys are worth at least, you know, 250 million each minimum. Mono's probably worth about 800 million. Hmm. But, but they're, they're, they're worth a lot of money uh, and yet they still have to get up in the morning, they still have to go and brush their teeth, they have to go and get a purpose to, to, to live that day and also, you know, not just to have fun all the time, you can't have fun all the time so there, there's, there's purpose, there's you know, uh, they'll have goals, they'll have things that they want to, to do and not just necessarily for themselves to make the world a better place, to make their families' lives a better place, to help people overall. They might even involve themselves in a, a charity or a foundation. Mm. I mean, you look at homelessness, if, if those seven people got together and decided to put, let's put a million into uh, a foundation for homelessness for Ireland. Mm. And, and, and get right, the right people to come. Because one of the issues with homelessness, by the way, is not about just putting people away uh, that are in the streets into accommodation. It's, it's rehabilitating them. It's putting them back into a life that they can lead on their own and, and, and with dignity and with integrity. Mm. So there's a whole raft of things that these people can actually get into if they want to. But they don't necessarily are just going to kind of get in a hammock and swing away for the rest of their lives. No, because, as you said, unless you have a passion and you want to develop something in that area, that's another great possibility you can as well. You're saying to me, people with money still get up, they do, they work and they have purpose to their lives. Here's the thing, John. Investing wisely, which comes back to your speciality as well and the advice you give, isn't that so important that you get somebody that you trust that will put you in the right direction? Because remember, John, these are ordinary people and suddenly this absolute deluge of money comes into their lives. It can be problematic for people as well. It certainly can. And they want to make sure that the, the, the key uh, phrase here, Jerry, is they want to preserve and grow their, their wealth, not 
just make money from money. Uh, preserve, preservation is, is the key word. That's a word, actually, that Warren Buffett uses. So, you know, if you look at any asset class, whether it's property, whether it's, you know, commodities, but the stock market, believe it or not, is the best asset class of any of them over any period of time. But it's the careful uh, management of how you get into the stock market that's the key. Mm. And not to panic when the first sign of we're currently, believe it or not, in the 26th bull market. And the bull market is a rising market. And it's the ninth longest in the history, sorry, the second longest in the history of uh, uh, the, these markets. And it's still four years shy of the longest, which was 1987 to 2013 years. And the only reason it stopped then was the dot-com bubble burst. Mm. So the next phrase after a, a bull market is a bear. And for the bull to become a bear, it has to drop 20%. Now, we were very close to it last year, but, and we're a little bit stagnant at the moment. But it's still a, bear, a bull market. So, therefore, it's knowing what stocks or what, uh, you know, managed funds you want to get into or what way to, to distribute it. I mean, it's all about diversification. I mean, you can go from, uh, you know, very cautious funds to, to kind of Asian emerging markets, uh, to technology stocks, energy stocks, even the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. You can do all sorts of things, but it's a question of getting the right blend and the balance and in line with your own um, kind of uh, risk attitude. That risk attitude is really, really important mm. as well. But it's all about preservation of your wealth uh, and growing it, in, you, know, in, you know, not ex- exponentially, but growing it in, 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 a, in a slow fashion. Last question before we finish up, and thank you for joining us again with those wise words. Would you love to be sitting down with them? Oh, God, I'd love it. What I love it. I, w- I would certainly be opening the champagne uh, for them. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a great feeling. I've had a couple, believe it or not, Jerry, of lotto winners myself. Yeah. Uh, and some, but, this, you know, the, the very first one was probably about 20 years ago. They won 250,000. And this is a couple who didn't have two brass pennies to rub together. Yeah. And it was so funny the way it happened because they had, I'd organized a mortgage for them and now they're going to be able to pay off their mortgage. The mortgage was only small at the time. Uh, and, and, and they came in and I didn't know what they were coming in for. They had a bottle of wine to, to thank me for that mortgage. And so I, I, you know, had this kind of fellow colleague in my office and I asked them to move. They came in and I said, listen, thank you so much. You shouldn't have, uh, you know, come in with the, I'm so pleased. And then I started talking like this and I said, you know, the sad part is that there's no incentives uh, for mortgages this year in, in my institution because it's all about investment. And I, I'm not getting, and he said, hold it right there. Maybe this will help. And he puts down the check for a quarter million. I nearly fell off the seat. Oh, John, and what it, a lovely story. It was, it was really, really good. But, but yeah, and, and, and they, um, uh, they had, a, it was a nice amount of money. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't change their lifestyle. It was anyway, that could be them on the other phone there for you. We're going to let you go. John Lowe, Money Doctor, thank Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Maybe it is the call going through. 175,475,380 euro. Good on you. Message in from a listener. Imagine this, Jerry. If I won that amount of money, it would only buy Paul Pogba and Virgil van Dijk, two great players, but wholly overvalued the pair of them, as all footballers are, I have to say. But thank you for reminding us of that. Hi, Jerry. Would you wish my daughter, Sarah Kelly, a very happy birthday today? Happy birthday, Sarah. All love and best wishes from Mammy Kay. It comes in to us on late lunch today. And we'll join you in the good wishes because I just want to wish the people who've won that massive amount of money all the very best. Enjoy it. I'm so happy for you. Make it work for you and your family. Spread out the joy to others. Help whoever you can. 
I'm delighted, thrilled that you won that today. Life-changing indeed. I'm sure I have no more to say. There's only one thing to head towards news and weather at two, isn't there? Abba, for all of you, the winners, here it is. Lunch with Blackstone Motors, now open in Dundalk, beside the Dundalk Retail Park. The nearly new sale is now on at Blackstone Motors, Dundalk. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio Midweek this Wednesday afternoon. Now, a County Meath community has joined efforts with a New York company to raise money for a local man who's recovering after battling sepsis in the United States of America. We're going to hear more about it now because uh, the man's cousin, the man's name is Paul Gray, he's from Beliver, and his cousin Tony Fox is on the line. Hello, Tony. Johnny, how are you doing? Thanks for taking our call. Really appreciate it. And we want to highlight this and let people know what's happening. He's a, he's a well-known guy in the Beliver area, isn't his family as well? They are indeed, uh, Jerry. Yeah, Paul would have played football with Beliver uh, underage and that. And uh, he was probably in America, probably about just over 10 years. But he'd be well-known to the community and uh, the other communities in the surrounding area, Kildalki, Killeen. Trim in that area, and that boy. Mm. And, and uh, he's in the States working away, as you say, about 10 years there. What did he work at? He was a painter and decorator, Jerry. Uh, he has been. He worked uh, at home before he left for the States with his dad, John, 
and that's what he was doing. He continued to do that in the States then when he moved over. And he also helped out uh, a, a drummery man, Gary Donoghue, didn't he as well? He did indeed, yeah. He was a, he was a great help, help to Gary as well. You know, Paul, uh, Paul is a very good lad, you know. So that's why this Stanford night we're running from now on Friday the 22nd of February in McLaughlin's. We hope everyone can turn up and give him as much support as he deserves. What happened to him? Tell us the story of that. Basically, Jerry, he contracted sepsis uh, on the 4th of January. Now, it happened in a very short space of time. Um, his mum and dad, John and Bernadette, and Marie and Paul, uh, his siblings, uh, got the phone call. It happened basically in a 24-hour period. So he was brought straight into a hospital in Pittsburgh, and he was very, very critical for him, 24 or 48 hours. So there was a lot of stress on him. Uh, Bernie and John had to get flights straight over. Um, but he, he's making progress now, slowly. But he's still very sick, you know. So it was a big shock to the family and friends, you know. And it hit him hard because life support w- required to keep him going for a number of weeks. Yeah, he was on a ventilator for up to six weeks. It's only probably in the last week and a half that he's been off the ventilator. Now, he is. the doctors are very happy with him. And uh, the doctors over there have done a fantastic job with him. So he is making small strides, but slowly, you know, there's a, there's a lot. Like, he'll have a lot of rehab and stuff to, to do after he gets out of the hospital as well. So initially he had a, a pneumonia and a virus over the Christmas and then this developed into the sepsis full-blown? Yeah, it did indeed, it did indeed. And left him very, very, uh, very, very sick. Uh, he had a heart and lung specialist. Like there was a team of doctors working around him, around the clock for uh, up to two to three weeks mm. to see could they, could they stop it. And his mum and dad have been out there, I know, and they've been keeping vigil. And uh, beyond this, he is on the road. We want to say this, slowly but surely, he is making a recovery. It's good news. But there's a long road ahead. There is a long road ahead, Jerry. definitely. Like, you know, he is making a good pro- progress, but slowly, like, um, to look at it, the, the biggest thing now is to get him out of hospital and get him into rehab then. And please God, he'll make a full road to recovery, you know. The money in the U.S. healthcare system required even to go in for a visit and a small uh, consultation or even a minor operation—it's big, isn't it, in America? It is, it is indeed. Uh, and look at uh, America's all these places where, yeah, you, you'll find two people in, in every household working. You know, because it is so expensive. And every—that's why a lot of people give out about this country. But to be honest with you, that's one thing. The health service—if you're sick, you're looked after here. You know. Mm. But look, we're hoping now this benefit night on Friday night will will raise a good few quid because it's a it's a lot of stress on the family, especially when you're not expected to have to go. The phone call came with with great surprise to the family, so they basically had to hop on a plane straight away. And John and Bernie have been over there with it for the last eight weeks. It's a long stint for them as well over there, uh, away from home. So there's a lot of issues going on here. The crowdfund, uh, the GoFundMe page has raised quite a bit of money so far, hasn't it? Yeah, it has indeed. I think it's, it's over uh, 7,000. So yeah. the, the people over there in America, his friends over there have been very good as well. And especially a chap from Bliver as well, Alan Dorn, uh, will be a best friend of all. He's been absolutely fantastic uh, over there. Because when Baron, Bernie and John uh, went over, he looked after them. Uh, put them up for a couple of nights till they got settled in and that. So they've been very, very good friends in America as well. So back home, the push is starting to help this young man, Paul Gray, well known in sporting circles in Beliver, in County Meath as well, in a situation that he really does need all of our support. So Friday night it is. Where is it happening again? Friday night it's happening in McLaughlin's Bar Lounge in Beliver. Right. Um, there's an auction raffle on the night. Also, music by Trevor Smith, Ken Gillick, Brian Mullen, Martina Lina, Tom Ryan, Andrew McGauley, Pete McCairns and Bridget Gray. So there's plenty of entertainment. And also, Jerry, for the auction, we've assigned her by Henry Shefflin 
signed her by Joel Canning, two rugby balls signed by Leinster and Irish International, Sean O'Brien, and signed to Burley Ireland team. And there's loads and loads of prizes for the raffle as well. Very good. And the people have been very, very good in the community of Beliver and the surrounding areas. And people buying tickets, it's absolutely fantastic. So if, if anybody is around on Friday night, the 22nd of February, uh, it starts at 9 o'clock, by all means, come along. Get along. McLaughlin's Bar, it's going to be a great night. Wonderful opportunity to win brilliant mementos from the world of sport and elsewhere uh, also. And there'll be more going on, I know, in uh, terms of fundraising down the road, which we will come back to. But we want to concentrate on McLaughlin's Bar, Beliver, this Friday. Tony, thanks for taking the call. And will you pass on our good wishes to his mum and dad and to Paul as well? We will indeed. Thanks very, very much. Not at all. You're so welcome. Take care of yourself. That's, uh, you know, something that happens uh, a little bit of a cold and into a sort of a pneumonia. And then before you realise it, sepsis, one of the most serious conditions you can be landed with. And in the States and the cost, you know what I'm talking about and everything. If you can help in any way, please do give them uh, all your support. It's very worthy indeed. And please God, in the near future, Paul Gray will be back on his feet and back to full fitness and able to go back to his work, etc. And his mum and dad will get back home as well. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Now open in Dundalk beside the Dundalk Retail Park. The nearly new sale is now on at Blackstone Motors Dundalk. I'm just thinking as I introduce my next guest, it's millions all the way on late lunch today. Yes, we were talking about the big Euro Millions win at the start, and I have a man with me who's a million-selling author of crime fiction books. Yes, there is a link, Shane Dunphy, don't be laughing. Yes, there is. There, there is. is a real yeah. link between you and all these millions. Yeah, well, in fairness, the, the, the millions that I've sold are, are of all the books that I've written, so crime is, is relatively new. It's only, it's three out of twelve are crime, but yeah, in, in particularly uh, the, the, the largest chunk of that million have been my, my non-fiction books about the work I did in child protection yes. but I'm very proud of those as well and it's all part of the tapestry and I always say that Donegan who's the protagonist of these books lives in sort of the same world you know Yeah. Mm. You see I had a lovely introduction but I just thought I'd deviate for it. But I'm sure go- why not? No but I'm going to do something different here now. I'm going to read the rest of the introduction do, because go for it. Go for it. his latest book is the third instalment of a trilogy called, this one is called If She Returned. Mm. It's book number 10 10 am I right? Yes the 10th or 11 is it 11? It, this 10? is the 12th book. Oh my god even that, book, yeah. I, I'll have to go back to the maths tables. It's yeah. number 12 for Shane Dunphy, who's mm. a multi-talented man, as you're going to hear, because he writes, he plays music, he's involved with social studies and psychology, sociology, he's a lecturer in Waterford, and you know what, he's ours for the next while on Late Lunch today. You are so welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Jerry. Thanks very much Thanks for, for joining the opportunity. us. What about this trilogy of books? Because you started, number one was After She Vanished, yeah. and this fellow you mentioned there, David, David Donegan, Donegan, yes. Well, when we begin... the story of After She Vanished, Donegan's world is falling apart. He's a criminologist. He teaches half the time in Maynooth University in the criminology department, which he actually, in the book, he started it. He's the guy responsible for starting that department, but it's been taken away from him because his life has become so disastrous. And he also works half time for the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which would be the Irish equivalent of the FBI. The reason his life has fallen apart is that way back in 1996, his niece Beth, who's four years old in 1996, he dotes on her. He's very career-minded. She's, she's like his surrogate daughter. And he's taken her Christmas shopping and they're on Grafton Street and they stop to listen to some carol singers. She takes her hand out of his for a moment and she got, she's gone. 
He turns around and she's disappeared. 18 years later, she's never been seen or heard from again. There's been no ransom note. He has become obsessed with finding her. But of course, everything else has fallen by the wayside. He's useless as a teacher in Maynooth and they're trying to get rid of him, but they can't because of his contracts. Very hard to fire a teacher in Ireland. And the guards are giving him jobs to do that he can't muck up. So in After She Vanished, they've given him the task of these five homeless people who've gone missing off the streets of Dublin. Everyone thinks they've just moved on to a new turf. But Dunnigan gets stuck in and he finds an, a, a series of clues that she believes may lead him to what happened to Beth. And at the end of that story, a shoe is delivered to his flat in Fibsborough, which is, he believes is one of the shoes that Beth was wearing when she disappeared. So which leads into the second one, which was when she, when was, she was gone. gone. So the, this shoe has a, some forensic clues on it, uh, which lead him to a private, an old private psychiatric hospital in West Cork, which he finds there's nefarious goings on down there. And from there he goes, he follows the trail to an Inuit village just inside the Arctic Circle in Greenland. And when he's there, he discovers that Beth may have been there. And he's sitting in the airport waiting for his plane to go home. When he gets a call from Father Bill, who's his mentor back in Ireland, he's this priest who runs a homeless shelter on the Keys in Dublin. And Father Bill believes he has found Beth. Which leads us to... If into she this returned. one here. Yes, if so that's where we pick it up. And, you know, you can pick us up right now on Facebook Live and Shane Dunphy and myself are here in studio <laughs> on Late Lunch. Hello to everybody, Hi everybody. in Facebook you? Live land today. And in this one, it's intriguing as well because, look, we, we want people to get this book and read about it. Is she or isn't she? We can't answer that one until you read we the book. We can't until you read the book. No, what I can say is that Father Bill very much believes it's her and Dunnigan goes tearing back to Ireland. But, of course, there's another story going on as well because um, when Dunnigan arrives back, he's given a job by the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Five very successful men, businessmen, academics, lawyers, they've all come to believe that they are being hunted by this online ghost story, Mother Joan, who's like this avenging angel who people write stories about on on the internet, on these web forums. And she is kind of like... She hunts down men who have done bad things, but who have made them made a secret out of them. So you present yourself to the world as being this incredibly nice guy, but in reality, you're not that nice at all. And she hunts you down and takes revenge. So these men believe that Mother Joan is real and has stepped out of the the internet into real life. And Dunnigan starts to believe that she might be as well. So that story is kind of tinkering away in the background too. It is, and that story began with you and one of your lectures and one of yeah, the yeah. students on your course. A student came to me um, a number of years ago now. Um, It was in September at the very start of the year and at the beginning of the year you start to do all the introductory stuff about child protection. So a lot of the time people are triggered or become quite upset by that. So at the end of a lecture this student who seemed very grounded and very well adjusted came up to me and said could she have a chat with me after class. As soon as the rest of the students filed out she bursts into tears and so I thought she must be really upset by something and she says look I need to tell you something but you're not going to believe me. And I said to her there's nothing you could tell me that I haven't heard before and she immediately made a liar out of me by telling me she was being haunted by Slenderman. Now Slenderman is this terrifying boogeyman this kind of very tall faceless creature with fingers that turn into tentacles and um, he's motiveless 
he comes after you often just because you found out that he exists. This is the story online. Now, of course, it's complete nonsense. Uh, but I said to her, look, I need to go away and research this and find out what the story is. So when I looked at it, I found out that you can very easily find out this guy invented him for actually a photoshopping competition. Um, he created these photos of this figure standing behind children playing in playgrounds or at a library in America. And he put little lines of text suggesting that after this photo was taken, the library burnt to the ground, killing all of these people. But it's completely a makey-uppy online ghost story. And I was able to demonstrate this to her. And of course, she had all of these reasons why she believed she was being haunted. She said her phone had not been getting messages to her and she was walking her dogs past the woods and she felt she was being watched. And I could have said to her, God, I felt all of those things in the last 24 hours. You know, it could have been me. (laughs) But I was very easily able to show her that that this was just her being kind of sucked in by this very convincing, very layered online story. But this stayed with you, of course, and you bring it to life in this book. At the time when she told me I was still writing the non-fiction. Mm. But it's funny, when she walked away, I, I always carry notebooks and pens around with me. And when she walked away, I, I went back to my office and I started scribbling down these lines in this character sketch and I realised that I had Mother Joan. And I wonder, what am I going to do with this now? And I figured, look, I'll put the notebook into my desk drawer and a couple of years later I'm asked to do the non to do the fiction, the crime series and Mother Joan found a home. There you are. The rest is history. Creepy pasta. Is that what you're talking about? Is yeah. that what describes that? Yes. Creepy pasta are these series of very, very short online horror stories which are all supposed to have a ring of truth to them. Um, so it's kind of like you, you read a story and the person writing the story says, this didn't happen to me but it happened to a friend of a friend. And you'd be amazed how these things spread because, you know, Slenderman is a classic example. Initially, he was just two photos with a couple of lines of text, but he captured something. People were fascinated by it. And then they started writing their own fan fiction and their own stories and adding to it. And this girl, when she spoke to me, my student, she was able to point me to a documentary on YouTube, which looked incredibly convincing, which actually showed images, which they said were from an old medieval wood carving, which showed a figure that was very like Slenderman. Now, I don't know whether that wood carving even exists or not, but it's so convincing when you get drawn into that. So when I was researching Mother Joan, I had to go onto the internet and, and look into all of this stuff myself. And it's the first time since I've started writing that I actually scared myself a little bit because some of this <laughs> stuff is really creepy. But, you know, it's good fun. Everyone enjoys yeah. it. That's why we read horror stories. But you stories must take it in that movies. vein when you do, like, unlike the, the, the young lady, thank God you were able to put her right on this, yeah. you know, but you take it at face value and for what it is and that it is generated and created. In in the first draft of the book, I had um, Inspector Tormey, who is Donegan's boss in in the police service, and I had a a backstory which the editors ended up saying, it's it's too confusing, let's leave it out, but that he had an aunt who was kind of like the old wise woman in the area where he grew up in rural Ireland, and she used to tell him stories about the Banshee. And of course, Mother Joan ties into all of that, this very powerful female energy. And, um, you know, I I quite like the fact, and a few people have said to me, that there are very strong female figures in, in the books and they quite like the idea that in this book you know in an awful lot of crime novels it's women who are being kind of turned into victims whereas in this book it's the men and it's this female energy coming after them which um, I suppose in in a way it kind of puts the normal um, sort of stereotypes on their heads which I enjoyed. In a way though this book has to be you mentioned it's 12 now and this one has to be the most poignant from your point of view or Mm. um, I'm talking about who you dedicate the book to because you dedicate this book to your brother. Sure, yeah. I was I was sitting down to begin writing it back in April and my brother had been ill for 
he'd been ill for about five years at this point. He had cancer. And we it's terrible. You kind of get used to it when somebody is ill for a long time. It becomes part of the fabric of your life. And yeah, we all knew that Carl wasn't well, but he was very strong. He was still doing a lot of the things he loved. He was mad into fishing. And um, yeah, I just gotten used to the fact that he was ill. And I started writing the book and he went into hospital. And so I was going in and visiting him. And it, as I was writing the Donegan character, people would come up to me and say to me, uh, particularly people who knew me and my family, they'd say, Donegan, you know, that, that's Carl, isn't it? And I would say, no, he's not. But I realised, particularly when I went into book two, he really was. There was an awful lot of my brother's character traits. Donegan can be quite a difficult person. He can be quite acerbic. He doesn't suffer fools lightly. But he's someone who is completely compelled to always do the right thing. He's a guy you would really want on your side if you were in a row with somebody. Very, very smart. He's very interested in sort of science fiction and, you know, reading and that kind of thing. And that's very much my brother. So just as I was beginning to write this, as I said, my brother went into hospital and he didn't come out and um, we we, we buried him. And I had to stop writing because it was just too painful because I realised in a way that this series of books were in some ways my, my love letters to my brother. So in, in when the summer rolled around and, and college was finished and I kind of had a bit of headspace, I sat down and finished it. And I, yeah, I dedicated the series to him because in a way, this is my way of, of, of keeping his memory alive. You know, while Donegan is here, Carl is still with us. What a lovely story that is. And talking about female energies, the wonderful Carmel Harrington, she sat in that seat on many occasions with me in this studio. She said to say hi. I was chatting to her actually Aww. on the way up. I stopped for coffee and I gave her a ring and uh, she says to say hello. She's gorgeous. She's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you 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 were in close contact and become very close to her and Yes, friend, Carmel friends. helped me through a, a very difficult period last year actually. I was having some some issues around sort of um agency representation and things like that and um the thing about being a writer is that you're 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 squirreled away um on your own in your study or I have a, a writing shed in I was which going this to ask happened. you about that. I love yeah. that a writing shed and yeah. your poor grandson Reese <laughs> Sitting outside with the dog and Grandad, he, this was too young to be a Grandad. Grandad sitting in the shed, battering away. Yeah, yeah. You see, Reese is the only grandson, so when he comes over to the house, he gets full, undivided attention. And uh, he and I go out for walks with the dogs, and we play games. And Reese loves music. Actually, we, we, I inherited a piano recently, and Reese sits in and clatters away on the keys, and he loves it that we sit. He holds little concerts. But for ten days, Grandad was in the writing shed, and uh, as you know, it was a very hot summer, so I had to keep the door open. And Reese and Lulu, my dog, who is uh, like Reese's best friend, were perched outside on the step. You know, why won't Grandad come out to play? But unfortunately, Grandad has to write the books and so he has to Deadlines are deadlines. And look at that. There's my deadline for the next break. <laughs> Perfect. Shane Dunphy, he's just brilliant. He's with us for the next while on Late Lunch. He has the guitar he's going to play. We're going to say, and we're on Facebook Live as well if you want to join Hi. us there. Back in a couple of moments. Shane Dunphy is with us on Late Lunch and if you've been with us on Facebook Live, this interview has continued continued for the last number of minutes but we're back on air here on LMFM radio. I wanted to mention uh, one of your books in particular, The Boy They Tried to Hide because this is potentially you in the stratosphere in the movie world. Yes indeed Um, a couple of years ago I was uh, asked to participate in a radio show on American public radio national public radio in America a show called Snap Judgment which is a storytelling show um, and it's it's hugely influential, very popular in the States. And they wanted me to take part in their Halloween show, which is called Spooked, in which they get four different people to tell sort of like true to life ghost stories. So there was this case I'd been involved in with a little boy whose mother started to believe that his imaginary friend was real. 
And that's how I got involved. So I told the story. Um, a, a lovely lady called Nancy Lopez had come across the book. She was rushing to catch a plane in an airport and literally just grabbed it like the cover and grabbed it out of the rack on her way to departures. And thank God she did. And so she really enjoyed it. So she we, we Skyped over about five hours and I told the story and she edited it down to a half an hour very cleverly, stuck some atmospheric music behind it and some sound effects. And it went out and I loved it and I thought nothing more about it. I listened back to it and I thought that that's brilliant. It's very clever how she did it. And about two weeks later, I start getting these messages over social media from film producers, which I originally thought was a joke. I didn't take it seriously. I thought, ah, feck off. You know, that's that's not, you know. But then I started Googling them and these people were real. And there was about six or seven initially, and it went up to about maybe 14 different producers, some of whom were quite small, wanted to kind of make a documentary out of it. But some of them were, were big, real movie people. So I boiled it down to two, one of which, and again, the gods were looking after me, was Harvey Weinstein's people. And I eventually decided no, because I didn't like the vibe that I was getting. They were much more aggressive in their pitch and they were more telling me how they wanted it to be rather than what I wanted. And the other crowd were a group called Rumble Films who made uh, Drive with Ryan Gosling, Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, Whiplash. They made Alan Rickman's last film. And a lovely lady called um, Stephanie Wilcox, who's become a very good friend of mine, is their um, commissioning producer. And she and I just talked for hours, uh, initially just about films we liked and eventually she she said look you know we'd like to make this and I said yeah great and I, I just I'd just been to the cinema to see Nightcrawler and if anyone has ever been involved in the news media in particular they'll see the truth in, in that film and it, it's quite disturbing and distressing in ways but also very very compelling so I said yeah we'd do it and Again, that was about, it's, it, yeah, several years ago now. It's very slow the way these things develop. Of but um, a lady called Catherine McMullen is writing the script and um, she's just an absolutely fantastic writer. She's been involved in loads of really, really interesting projects. Um, I mean, she contributed to the script for Whiplash. She uh, wrote for Wentworth Prison, you know, the, the, she's Australian. So yeah. she wrote for that show, which is just fantastic. Um, she has a movie being shot here at the moment with uh, one of the actors from Game of Thrones is playing the lead in that. He's also in um, Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. He's the lead in that. And I met her on Sunday and we chatted about everything. And it's, yeah, it's very, very exciting. The goal is that this would be being shot this time next year. But again, they've talked to me about casting, um, which I cannot share. I've been sworn to secrecy. But of course, you, you're dealing then with schedules of these really big guys. So yes. it could be next year, could be the year after. I don't know. But it's lovely. It's brilliant. And Isn't I'm delighted. it just another great story? And mm. you obviously are very intuitive. You know, that decision you made there, you mentioned a name that's really... I like to think I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, intuition and luck sort of intermingle. Yeah. I mean, again, when I was talking to Catherine on Sunday, I was just mentioning some of the other companies that approached me and she just said, you know, if you'd gone with this crowd, she said you'd probably be already building the house on the hill because the money that they would have thrown at you. But she said that, yeah, you lose control. I mean, the, the story that I always tell is back when I published my very first book, When's This Child? It went to number one on the bestseller list here. And I got approached by a TV company who wanted to make a mini series out of it. But they wanted to change the ending. They wanted a happy ending. And my nonfiction books 
some have happy endings, but a lot of them don't. And I was just too precious about it. And I said, no, I don't want anything changed. And I said, you know, these are real stories. I need to see the dirt under the fingernails and it needs to ring true. And so eventually they just said, look, they didn't feel that the the viewership was ready for that. And we walked away and parted company. And I was always kicking myself thinking, you know, "Ah, look, I should have just let them do it. But now I kind of feel things happen for a reason. And if I'd done that, I probably wouldn't be in the position that I'm in now, which is fantastic. So I think what's for you won't go by you, as my mother always used to say. Oh, it's a great saying, isn't it? Doctor, mm. who, Doctor who and you. Mm. Tell me. Yeah, I, I've, um, I'm involved with a company called Big Finish who do audio versions of Doctor Who um, audio plays. They're licensed by the BBC. So, yeah, I've done I do some sort of regular work for them in which um, a lot of what I do would be um, sort of writing reflections, really, on how sci-fi interlinks with your with your life. You know, so when my brother passed away, I would have written a piece about how, you know, one of the touchstones that we had when he was in hospital in the last few days were actually looking back on our experiences as kids and these shared TV shows that were very meaningful to us, one of which would have been Doctor Who. So and, you were uh, a fan? I'm still a fan. I absolutely love What Doctor do you make Who, of yeah. the female Doctor? I like her, actually. Um, I mean, when I saw the first episode that she did, I remember thinking, OK, the, the window dressing is very different, but you know, it's not a grumpy old guy. This is now a much more attractive uh, younger woman, but it's the Doctor. It's still the Doctor. And, you know, one of the things I like about it, and, and Donegan is a big fan of Doctor Who, he has Patrick Troughton stuck over his fireplace in his flat, and he talks to him and asks him questions and has conversations with him as if he answers back. You know, to me, what I love about the Doctor is that this is a a hero who flies around in a phone box so that people can ring him if they need help. He doesn't have a gun. He has a screwdriver to fix things. He always... He looks different. He doesn't necessarily look like a hero, but he'll always do the right thing. And he's a guy that tells you he can make the monsters go away. I think that's a tremendous message for young people. And I just, I, I love the idea behind it. And of course, with science fiction, you can tackle any issue whatsoever. Down through the years, Doctor Who, for better or for worse. And sometimes, let's face it, the production values haven't always been great. And the scenery has looked very shaky. But they've dealt with everything from, you know, issues of race to identity to poverty to slavery it's all been in there and um i just think that it's it's it has been a brilliant commentary on on the history of of this part of the world over the last 50 odd years despite all you say i'll never ever uh, stray away from loving the daleks i love the, daleks, the cybermen yeah. this is it yeah my, my daughter a while back um made me a, a a birthday card in which she'd drawn a dalek on it and um she, <laughs> being a little girl she had trimmed it she'd cut out little gingham things and trimmed along the edge of the of the, the birthday card and I actually sent it to Nicholas Briggs who's my friend who's the voice of the Daleks and I said to him you know Gingham Daleks what do you think and he says do you know what somewhere in the universe they're probably out there the Gingham Daleks you know why not why not <laughs> why not is right I want to head to a break just a couple of moments early because he has the guitar with mm. him and he's going to sing and he's going to tell you about the, uh, the background to why he's singing this song with us this afternoon and of course we have more to chat with Shane Dunphy's with us would you like a copy of this brilliant book he'll sign it for you if she Returned is the name of it. If you'd like a copy, text your answer to this question to 086-1800-658 or WhatsApp it. WhatsApp is free as well. 086-1800-658. He's driven up here today to Drogheda from the southeast of Ireland. 
nickname of the county is the Dacia. It's a very tough one, but you know what I'm looking for. <laughs> Which Irish county is known as the Dacia? Get your answers in quick and you could be reading this brilliant book as early as this evening, perhaps. Stay with us on Late Lunch. Yes, the question was, I see somebody looking for it there. The Dacia. Dacia. Dacia County. What county are we talking about in Ireland? That's the answer to the question for a signed copy of Shane Dunphy's brilliant new book, Crime Fiction. It's called If She Returned. Get your answers in now to 086 1800 by WhatsApp or text. I say it again, you are a multi-talented man and uh, you have so many balls that you're juggling at Mm. once, let me say. But from your work and being involved in child protection for a long, long time, lecturing now in the area, you know, as well, it must be a furtive well to draw from for your writing. It is. I mean, it's it's been a gift in a way. Um, I mean, because of my work when I was, uh, when I started doing this, I knew that if I was going to write about the police, I mean, I had worked with the police myself as a consultant and David Dunnigan initially, when I when I drew the character sketch of him, was a social care worker, not a criminologist. And I sent the pitch in to uh, Kira, my editor, and she says, "Look, he can't be that. They'll they'll get confused with the other books. He has to be different." So I kind of figured, well, look, I lecture and I do consultancy sometimes with the police, so so that's what we'll get him to do. But I was able to give them a ring and say, "Guys, do you mind if I just come up and hang out in your offices for for a couple of hours?" And they said, "Sure, come up." And I spent a day. And similarly with the second book, there's um, several scenes set in forensic. Science Ireland when they're doing the forensic exploration of the shoe and I was able to go and get a full tour around there and see what all of that is like but of course one of the I've been very lucky in that the books have been very well reviewed and um, one of the reviews that I got said that um, you can really see my experiences in child protection dealing sometimes with some really nasty individuals particularly leaking out into the ba- the baddies the, 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 the evil people in the books yeah I, do, I did certainly get some inspiration there from my real experience and uh, may I say, I read an article you wrote as well recently about the Jamie Bulger case, which yeah. is back in the uh, back news in the because news again, of this yeah. movie nomination and the Oscars coming mm. up this weekend. Mm. And those two lads who took him away. And, you know, the parallels with, you know, this trilogy of books and you and the wee girl disappearing. Yes, 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 indeed. That's, I mean, that, that when, I, when I decided that that was the, the, the thread that we were going to explore through this series... I mean, I was able to go back to my own studies and pick out numbers of cases that fit the profile. And there have been a number of cases, and Dunnigan, as a criminologist, of course, is very aware of that. The people do reappear after 18 and 20 and more years. Again, in the first draft of, of um, After She Vanished, there was a sequence, again, which ended up on the cutting room floor of Dunnigan teaching a class and talking about one of these cases um, from America in the 1950s of a group of kids that, 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 that vanished. Uh, the parents thought that their house had been set on fire and they received a note 20 years later with a photograph of of them whom they recognised but these were adults but it was two of their kids my word what Um, an amazing story and and, and you know what it triggers with me as you sit here today Madeleine McCann and her disappearance look from your work and your writing and everything would it surprise you someday if she showed up if I hadn't, I've been slightly involved in that case because I wrote about it and um, I actually appeared on a show with one of the private detectives um, and he told me pretty conclusively that they, people who are investigating this do not expect that poor old Madeline is going to turn up. Right. They, they're pretty sure that that isn't going to happen. But theoretically, it could. It's not that unusual. It does happen that, you see, people abduct children for all sorts of different reasons. There is the, the really dark stuff that none of us want to think about about or talk about at this time of the day to a mixed listenership yes. reasons that people get taken. However, there are 
you know, very disturbed, distressed parents out, out there who lost kids for whatever reason and they just want somebody to look after and care for. And there have been instances where that has happened. I mean, there was a case that I studied um, again when I was researching this about a little girl who was being very, very well looked after and who believed that she had been adopted and um, discovered when a private investor came knocking on the door of her family home and uh, it came to light that she had been abducted as a baby. But she'd grown up believing and she'd had this fantastic upbringing with really, really caring parents. But they'd swiped her out of a buggy that her mother had rather stupidly left outside a supermarket when she went in to pick up some cigarettes in the 1970s. And so these stories do happen. It, it isn't always as, 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 as dark as we sometimes think. And they're found. You have to, that, you know, what you've even told us there, years yeah. and years later. That's a remarkable one about America and the fire yeah, in, in the house as well. What a shock for somebody to get all those years later after yeah, believing that's, that's something the, to the be... the Sodder case, if anyone's mm. interested in it. It's, it's a very strange and very, very interesting one, but it was one of my real inspirations for the these, this story. Yeah. Mm. You, you were well equipped, may I say, in position to comment as well through your historically your work uh, mm. what you're doing at the moment what about working with young people today as you do as you lecture in Waterford yeah. there yeah you know young people today in the world we live in with all the social media and it's uh, a very different world than it was when, when I was growing up I mean I was actually having a conversation with somebody yesterday um, who, who was asking my advice on a their daughter who's um, experiencing anxiety an awful lot and I was saying that I think one of the reasons that anxiety is so prevalent among young people today is that when I was growing up you had whatever you were doing in front of you right now and there was no nothing else bombarding you all the time. The phones, the iPads, the computers. We, you know, we live in an age where information has just exploded, and kids are, are being come at on all sides. And often, the world that is being presented to them is is not a very friendly or a very pleasant one. And I think that that children are, are and young people are juggling all of this stuff and trying to understand often concepts that that are really quite challenging. And and I believe that that has fed into the kind of, of of stresses that they deal with on a day-to-day basis. It's very easy for us to diminish how difficult that can be. If you think about it, you know, a kid could be sitting in front of you in in great form, you know, having a conversation with something and then they look at their phone. Somebody could have posted something horrible on their their social media. They could have read a, a news item that has distressed them. They could have seen footage. If you think about the fact that we now have, you know, um, uh, you know, assassinations literally being videoed as they happen and posted on the media, you can see very, very stressing things now at any hour of the day and night. That nine o'clock watershed that used to be there isn't there anymore. So we, we live in a world now where the, the horror is, is real and is being beamed into your home and into your social media account 24 hours a day. So yeah, the world is, 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 is much more complicated than it used to be. And you're seeing that feed through into issues with young people as well. That's interesting, you know, what mm. you said there. When, when, when you say it, I, I understand it now you're in a form or you're in a mood it's good and suddenly you look at just something simple and like that yeah it turns on its head pick up that guitar because we want to hear this song we can't let you go let me say before you leave today mm. it's been a real privilege to have you join us here on Late Lunch well, Live I'm, in I'm studio I'm delighted to, uh, to have been able to make the trip up and thank you very much for having me and it's, it's a privilege to be given so much time to, to talk about myself in the book so thank you for that not at all okay, you're welcome the song, song I'm going to play um, the, the, the reason I brought this was that I, I did a song at the launch of If She Returns and I've been doing a couple of songs at other people's book launches as well people have asked me to come along and do that and 
and it's kind of started generating a little bit of interest and I've been asked about it across several of the, the talks that I've been doing to promote the book so I said I'd give it a go. The interesting thing about trying to do a song that fits in with these books is that David Dunnigan doesn't like music in fact he hates it um, but one of the one of the, the things that um, people ask about is the love story in the book between Dunnigan and Diane who is his kind of on again off again girlfriend so this is a, a love song that I'm going to sing which is set in Ireland about a love affair that doesn't quite go the way people may have wanted it to this is written by a guy called Mickey McConnell When we started out our journey We met with Jimmy Speed He said because he knew your father That he'd do us a good deed But the horse we put our money on I think it's running still We were staying in a boarding house And couldn't pay the bill You told me not to worry You told me not to care You said the town's full of Americans We'll go busking in Air Square We sang Danny Boy in Galway Bay About 87 times The world was ours and I was yours I thought that you were mine And there was roadside stops For bread and cheese Supermarket wine The world was ours I was yours And thought that you were mine And you called me from the airport Before you caught your plane You said that you were leaving me And I was not to blame You told me not to kid myself We might still be friends I knew as I said goodbye We'd never meet again And there was roadside stops For bread and cheese Supermarket wine The world was ours I was yours Thought that you were mine There was roadside stops For bread and cheese Supermarket wine The world was ours I was yours Thought that you were mine The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors Now open in Dundalk Beside the Dundalk Retail Park The nearly new sale is now on At Blackstone Motors Dundalk Shane Dunphy just leaving the building. His new book, If She Returned. The Dacia is County Watt, Louise. Do you know? 
Washford. Washford. He's actually from. He's actually a Wexford man. Yeah, and I know you've reminded me that I asked the wrong question, didn't I? Oh, may I call back? I should. I should. Jeez, I'm only have to think of that. I should have asked the question. What are Wexford known as? Do you know what Wexford footballers are known as? No, I haven't a clue. The yellow bellies. Are they? <laughs> yeah, they are. Why? They are because they're short. They have a yellow ring in the middle of the maroon on the jersey, so okay. they're known as the yellow bellies. Well, that's my theory with the short. There's probably another real reason for it. How did I? <laughs> Don't be must think I'm a gobdaw. He's going down the road thinking. So I was wondering because when he left, he said, "I said, you know, I'm heading to Wexford Town." Oh, and the name of God, and the chap was that generous. He didn't even correct me. And thanks, Shane. <laughs> thanks for being generous to me. You should have put me in my spot. Uh, anyway, I did ask the question. It's <laughs> <laughs> known as the Dacia in the name of God. Now I'm really red in the face. Uh, it's Waterford, Waterford. But Shane is from Wexford. Let me say he is a yellow belly. He is from Wexford. Apologies, Shane. Anyway, Waterford was the answer I was looking for. It may not have been the answer <laughs> about Shane. Who's the book going to Louise? Me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Madeleine Kennedy in Forest Park in Drogheda. <laughs> well, actually, there's two copies here. If you want one, you can have the other one. <laughs> we were keeping it for the book club. Oh, God, that's giving me now laugh this afternoon. Nothing like a laugh to lift your spirits, is there? Anyway, let's get serious uh, for a moment because my next guest, I do want to tell you about him. He's from County Meath and he's just been named as the Press Photographer of the Year. It's a wonderful award. And he's in the hot seat with me on late lunch after the break. Let me read the words of the judges. They said with four category awards and a comprehensive and visually imaginative range, this person displayed uh, their uh, ability across the wide array of subjects essential to the art of press photography. I have a man with me on late lunch now. He's originally from Trimmon County Mead and he's just been named the Press Photographer of the Year for 2019. When he walked in, I know him. I've seen him in the sticks and him working. When I was out working on games myself. Tom Honan, congratulations. Thank you very much, Jerry. Cheers. Thank Thanks you for here. joining me no today. I do say that, you know, when you're playing your trade, we know it as journalists on the sideline sure, and yeah. you doing your work as well. That's the unglamorous side, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Uh, like, uh, football matches in the middle of winter when the rain is pelting down. Um, everyone says the job is glamorous, but there's many a night that I got came home completely soaked from a, been out of football match and it's not too glamorous, I can tell you. But my God, to be acknowledged with this wonderful award this year, to be named the best in Ireland. How many years have you been putting in entries for this? Well, this is probably my 25th year to actually enter the awards. So, yeah, uh, it's taken a long time to actually win the final award. Like throughout the years, I might have won category awards in, in, in the in the in the competition, but to win the overall thing is like a complete honour. It's very very special. It is the forty first year right, of yeah. these awards. I want to remind listeners as well. So you you submit a portfolio. How many snaps go in? So. Um, at the end of each year, you, you get all your photographs from the year. So you put your best 18 pictures in uh, from from everything you've done throughout the year. So sometimes it's hard to kind of pick your final 18. Like it's very subjective which you think is going to be the best pictures. So you kind of have to go with your gut and see, you know, wh- what you think is going to be the best. And then uh, the committee, they have an international judging panel who come over uh, and they judge the, the winning photographs. So there's category winners and then at the then every category winner goes into the overall portfolios which I 
won the overall portfolio award. Now you yeah. did brilliantly because you won in four categories. That's right. And yeah. you had a runner up in another as well. That's right, yeah. So you really yeah. dominated these yeah, awards this yeah, year. Yeah. So, some years uh, like photographers can win four or five awards and not get the overall award. So um it's just a bit of luck that I got it this year, so I'm really delighted. I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> I believe it's down to hard work and dedication, sure. a knife of the shot and a, a just reward for all Thank the years you've been producing brilliant images yes. for us. Let's talk about a couple of them. I want to talk about this one in particular for us because I'm just going to tell listeners sure, here yeah. are a group of young girls on communion day That's right, yeah. with one boy sitting in the middle of them and they're in, are they in an open carriage they're in, or they're something? They're in an there? open carriage. It was actually the May Day Parade in Ring's End. So um, the celebration is that all the communion kids from the local school will parade in the May Day Parade. And if, I think there was one little boy in the class and uh, actually it was at the ev- end of the event uh, which was covering that all the kids went into the carriage to get a picture and this little boy just popped in and it's always the way like uh, on assignments where if you wait for an extra couple of minutes the real magic happens when it's kind of unplanned and uh, everyone's kind of off guard but it's a fantastic image yeah it was one of my favourites Was that a runner up or a winner for you? Uh, that was in part of the portfolio so okay. um, it didn't actually win an award but it was part of my winning portfolio which I yeah I, I would have thought it was one of my strongest I pictures I would pick that sure. picture any day yeah, as a winner yeah. because it's absolutely brilliant look at the look on the boy's yeah. face and the girls as well and I want to remind late lunch listeners thanks to Tom he's given us access sure, to, yeah. to images from his portfolio and you can see them at the moment they're right up there on lmfm.ie and across our social media that's platforms perfect, as well yeah. so have a look at them and enjoy them so that's that one there let's come to some of the winners okay, that you yeah, had there no problem at all Michael D Higgins it yes, was his year wasn't yes, it yes yeah. it was great actually but um I photographed Michael D quite a lot uh, through assignments but when he first got uh, the first presidency I photographed him and that picture actually won an award that year so when you photograph people over and over you kind of see what what to do and how to react when 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 they win stuff so Sabina's always great for a picture she always kind of um, kind of um, interacts really good with uh, President Michael D Higgins so I kind of had a plan that this might happen during the picture so I positioned myself to get that picture which is actually a beautiful moment because her eyes are closed and yes. it's, it's full of the emotion of the yeah. probably probably the full of the emotion of the campaign and all the stress that probably went with the campaign yes and yeah. that won in the political category that's right didn't yeah, it? Yeah. that was a winner there for Tom and it's just hers the love between the president and sure. his wife and it just captures it at that particular moment now tell me who is this boy in the portrait well no that's uh, that's my uh, beautiful son Rory who's aged 12 so um, that was taken during the Beast of, Beast of the East um, the storm which happened last February and um, so like every boy and son uh, father and son uh, we decided to go out for a big walk uh, the night of the storm we put on our uh, warm clothes and cameras and so it was taken in the prom in Clontarf under natural light but uh, the night of the picture, um, the wind was like it was really, really strong. So you can, I think you can see that in the picture oh. with with the, the wind blowing against his face. It's so. absolutely brilliant yeah. because I'll tell you, he has one of these furry um, hoods on as uh, well. Uh, yeah, Eskimo, uh, the, the caption of the picture is called Eskimo Boy, which he does look like uh, that kind of uh, that facial it expression. Does. And yes. you can just see the force of the wind sure, in that yeah, picture yeah, there, yeah. can't you? Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, w- with camera quality nowadays, you can really shoot under available light. So. So 
many many years ago you probably wouldn't be able to get the same quality in the image but um, it, it was a wonderful image and uh, it's great to actually capture it and it's probably one of my favourite because it's of my son obviously Absolutely. so he's delighted with it and uh, and it was just a great moment to get like you know it's brilliant yeah. now there's a famous man in arts and entertainment right. in that category Mr Bono oh, that's himself. right yeah, yeah. always the entertainer <laughs> um, so that was um, that was during the, the last tour uh, I think it was the Innocence and um, Innocence tour in the Point Depot so we would have been brought in by the by the YouTube people to to cover the event, and a lot of photographers probably had similar images, but in that particular image, there's a, a nice bit of light behind him, and it's just kind of that split second that it got him uh, full flight, and uh, it's beautiful picture, yeah. which which I uh, um we originally was shot in colour, but we uh, we um, made it into black and white to kind of emphasise a little bit more. Yeah, well, it really does. Yeah, yeah. it does. And look at the faces of the audience. Exactly, around yeah, their the, expressions exactly, as well. Tom. Yeah, yeah. When, when you do uh, big events like this, uh, like. It's it's a big show and the production quality is fantastic. The light is great, and all all we do is just um, put a camera on it and we just photograph each moment. But a lot of it's down to the production value of mm. you too. Like they put on a great show. Yeah. yeah. And this one here in Daily Life, this was your runner-up. And that's that right. Yeah, there. that came second in Daily Life. This is yeah. a guy running along the beach with yeah. the, with the water in the background. That's and right. What's that tower? Yeah, there? I think that's um, that's uh, the tower in Rings End. So it would have been taken from the Dolly Mount end. Yes. So I think that might have been the lighthouse in the far side. Of to see so shot in quite a long lens but um, like doing a lot of press work we, uh, every day you're given an assignment but uh, a lot of the assignments would be just kind of general kind of uh, weather pictures and whatever yes. so uh, as I live quite close there I went down early morning and uh, the sun was just about to come up and uh, it's a beautiful beautiful image mm. of, of a little boy just running around the, along the seafront it's fantastic yeah. so three winners and a runners up in yeah. the category and then your, your complete portfolio Perfect. as well yeah were you surprised or did you think you were in with a, a shout this well, year? Well, I suppose every year you kind of go, right, this could be my year. And then you kind of look at other people's portfolios. And and uh, being a photographer is a very, very competitive industry. Like every day you go out and you're in direct competition with other photographers to get the best picture on the day. Like it, in saying that, it's quite competitive, but everyone kind of gets on. We all have a job to do. But um, I probably in my in my dreams, I probably thought of uh, that I might have a good enough set of pictures to win it. But like everything, when your name is read out, you kind of go, "Well, this is a dream." So to be to be picked is just an absolute honour. Oh, it's terrific! Now today is ironic that you are here talking to me because I want to roll the clock back a sure. little a little bit to another big lottery win, Dolores McNamara. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You've heard that. Yes, yes, your yes. County, yes, talking dearly. Yeah, county people. Uh, syndicate well, it's not me. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would have been here. I would have been looking. For something I know. Else. I know. But uh, uh, Mead Syndicate has won this massive right, okay. jackpot. But take me back when Dolores McNamara won that huge amount of money. You were involved, yeah. I think that's maybe twelve, thirteen yeah, years easily. ago. And um, back then, I suppose social media probably wasn't as prominent back then. But we found out that Dolores was uh, in a local hotel, and we got pictures of her. But but the day that she she didn't arrive at lottery headquarters for a number of days to collect her prize, and we weren't sure if she was going to go public. But a lot of flowers we had to sit outside and wait for Dolores to arrive. So we all got our camper seats and uh, we sat down and. We we waited until the lowest arrived because there's only one way into lottery offices if you want to get in and out. So, but uh, she, it was great. She did some pictures and it was great. Yeah, yeah. A real link with today. Back sure, to yeah, then yeah, as well. Great, yeah. now, you've covered the great and good in sport, I know in particular, but you've been involved in very big occasions here in Ireland and some that spring to mind: the Pope's visit to Ireland, of course, in recent times, and all the royal visits That's that right, came yeah, here. Yeah. What's it like being involved in those? Um, 
it's it's been really a real honour to kind of photograph to to be kind of witness to history. Um, like the Pope's visit, I think I was seven from the first time he arrived, and um, we would have old newspaper clippings when he arrived. So this year I was uh, working with um, the World's Meeting of Family to cover the event in conjunction with them. So we were one of the official photographers through Maxwell Photography, and it was great. We got like first hand access. Um, we were, we were in Crow Park, um, so and then I did a lot of this um, departure stuff at Dublin Airport when, when the Pope actually left Ireland. And then also with the, the royal visit of uh, Prince Charles and Camilla down in Cork, um, we were one of the official photographers for that. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And obviously they're people that are used to the Pope you mentioned there and the royals and yeah. celebs and that. They obviously get very used to guys like you and girls like you wandering sure, around. Sure, yeah. I, I suppose um, in a way you kind of have to just uh, remain very calm and professional about it and um, they employ photographers that can handle the situation and not to panic you know that's I think that's the key part of it is that you're there to do a job and to witness and get the pictures and I, I suppose a lot of stuff with, with the royal visit is to be very discreet and just to get the right pictures and to know when to take pictures and when not to take pictures is probably the key part of it yeah People want to know about you you're from Tremorin that's right you yeah. live in the smoke now at that's this right stage. yeah as a lot of people do yeah yeah, yeah. Growing up, was photography with you from an early age? That's right, yeah. My father would have been a very keen amateur photographer, so our house would have had a dark room, which would have been quite unusual. And it was probably always this mysterious kind of a room where red lights would go on and prints would be made. And I always found it quite magical, the whole process of being a photographer. And I suppose being in school, I kind of took it up as a hobby. And it always gave me great access to get into places where normally people can't get in, like football matches and and you just kind of, you can go into other places and when you have your camera, people just go, oh yeah, you can come in and cover these events. So yeah, it's great, uh, great. And is this what you did? You took it up then? Yeah, as so I probably went, I went to CBS and Trim and probably there probably wasn't a lot of uh, encouragement to kind of be a photographer. Like the outlet probably wasn't, people probably didn't think it was a, a very good career. But I, I kind of stuck my guns and I went to Kevin Street College for a few years in Marino College. And then I got into the industry through a cadetship and an apprenticeship with Sportsfile and then on to info photography and from there on like you know yeah and I'm just thinking even in your time in this business my oh my that's right today yeah. compared to when yeah. you started yeah like there's years where I would drive to Cork to cover a Munster final and drive back home to Dublin with the film and there was days where you'd leave before the 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 throw the cup up because you have to get out before the crowd to get in to get the picture in the paper. So yeah, but nowadays it is all very um, it, it's all digital, so we can just transmit from from instantaneous. That's nearly. right. You yeah. do it and bang, and away yeah, she goes, yeah, and she's up yeah. online immediately. That's right, yeah. that as well. But but in saying that, like uh, pictures are so throwaway nowadays. But I, I think uh, really good images do stand out. So yeah, yeah. I, I want to say that uh, but w- for years there's a gap in our even family pictures that we sure. took and then we stopped when this digital right, age came yeah. in but you know what I'm doing now Tom each year I print so many of yeah, the year's pictures yeah. at Christmas time just to have them yeah I think I think, I think with the development of phones and, and um, you know people always have a camera on them nowadays and I, I noticed myself that um, the picture quality with iPhones is just phenomenal now so every year you print more stuff and the quality is really really there with, it um, really with is so you you work uh, with a company that's right yeah I, I, basically I'm a freelance photographer but a lot of this work I did was commissioned by the Irish Times newspaper okay. so I kind of um, I spent about 
two or three days with Irish Times doing a lot of their features and then for the rest of the week I do a lot of work with the Irish Mail on Sunday and then in between that I kind of do a lot of PR work so uh, as a freelancer you never say no to anything so you keep working and then uh, hopefully the phone will ring yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you always have the camera on standby oh yeah I always have the camera yeah yeah it always um, you never know when you're going to get that picture and uh, and then when you don't have the camera you'll always will get the picture and you go right I should have had the camera yeah but it, yeah it's good always to have um, a camera with you have camera will travel that that's is right, the yeah, message yeah. so this is you know lifted you you're on a, at a new level now with this acknowledgement well, <laughs> it's all back down to earth last Monday back to work but um, yeah no it's been really fantastic like you know to, it, I suppose the PPI is it's a really great organisation and to get recognised by your peers is a real highlight because um, it's judged by your peers and it's really really good to finally win it you know well, we're delighted you've you won much. it. Congratulations Thank to you. you being a local boy. Thank you for coming no in problem. to Thank join us today. Much. We are pleased to acknowledge it. And as I say again, Tom has given us access to his wonderful portfolio of pictures for yeah. this. And they're there. You can view them, lmfm.ie and across our social media platforms as well. Don't forget to put the title now in your invoice. That's right, yeah. A lot of, a lot of uh, my clients were saying, uh, <laughs> I hope your price doesn't go up. But no, no, I won't. Uh, I'll keep it the same. I promise for a while. Tom Honan, Press Photographer of the Year for 2019. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, George. Take care. That's a lot on late lunch for this Wednesday afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us on an historic day when the biggest ever Euromillion jackpot was won in County Mead. Again, I say to the winners, congratulations, health to wear, enjoy. That's it for today. Eddie's up next with the uh, drive and we'll be back with your Thursday late lunch from half one. See you then. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Now open in Dundalk beside the Dundalk Retail Park. The nearly new sale is now on at Blackstone Motors Dundalk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.